This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Andrew Carroll, a CPA and consultant who is an independent CFO for freelancers, small businesses, and solopreneurs. Andrew, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. So uh, we've recently had a bunch of tax changes in the U.S., and I'm hoping you can uh, tell us a little bit about that. We did? Are you... I hadn't heard about that. Oh, no, this is... Just, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, just surprise. Kidding. It's the um, only thing I've done for the last week and a half, so yeah. So with the new regulations and the changes, what are the biggest things from a small business or independent freelancer, or as you call it, solopreneur? Yeah, and any of those things. Um, I, I sometimes use solopreneur. It depends on what you mean. I call everybody a freelancer. Yeah. I know Brett, my partner in crime on Orthogonal, gets really mad at me when I call everyone a freelancer because he doesn't consider himself a freelancer. But I consider anyone who, what I call, owns your own job. Basically mm-hmm. means you, you have your own company or you, and you do contract work and freelance work. And even if you're running your own company and you have employees and things like that or you're just doing your own thing, I call them all freelancers. What, right, wrong, or indifferent. But yeah, so a couple of things. The biggest switch is going to be most people in this space are not C-Corps. So the mm-hmm. big rule around C-Corp, the big tax break for C-Corps won't make a huge, huge difference for a lot of these folks. The big switch to know whether it's going to be important or not, it's a couple of major triggers. The first one's going to be tax deductions. So state, the, what they call the SALT, right? The state and local tax deductions. So property taxes or state taxes. So is that something that's going to affect you? If you're in California, New York, New Jersey, it probably will. If you are in a state that has no state income tax, probably it's not going to be a big deal at all. Right. Never been paying it. Just so people are clear, previously all state and local tax was tax deductible, right? And the major portion of that was the state income tax. Right. So in a state like California, where you've got a 8, 9, 10% state mm-hmm. income tax, that's a pretty major deduction that gets right. wiped out. Um, New York has similar rates. New Jersey has similar rates. Even a lot of other states that are in the middle ground. So I'm thinking Colorado, I think... Kansas, Missouri, uh, a lot of the southern states, they're all somewhere in the like 3 to 6% range. Mm-hmm. Usually not as big a deal. The other big thing is that they lump that SALT deduction in with property taxes right. on a house as well, which again, in the middle of the country is not usually a big deal because you don't usually have $10,000 of property taxes. Right. Out here in California, or particularly in New Jersey, it's extremely common to have property tax bills over $10,000. Yeah. So and that's the change that it went from there being that that was just not taxable, it was a deduction, yep. to there's now a $10,000 limit for yep. state and local taxes plus your mortgage interest. Correct. Correct. And in my last reading of it, this is one of those other things that we need to figure out is that I believe that it's a per person. So if you're married, you might get to double that. Hmm. And, and there's a, it, it's funny because the tax bill, the way it's written, has kind of this like middle ground of people where if you're making under 150, you're probably just going to save money. Even it with, even losing the salt deduction and things right. like that, you're probably just going to save money. If you're making over a million, you're probably just going to save money. Because what happened before was if you're making over a million bucks and paying a ton of tax on property, you, typically those folks had a home and a second home or they had big houses where they had lots of property tax. They were paying alt-min. So yeah. they, were lo- they were in effect losing that property tax deduction anyways. 
So getting rid of the SALT deduction, all it means is they're just going to pay more income tax and pay less alt-min tax, but their net tax bill doesn't really change that much. Right. They're just going to have a t their tax bracket come down, just like mm -hmm. everyone else's tax mm -hmm. brackets. And there's this middle income range of somewhere around, and I've not run enough scenario analysis to know exactly where it is, but and it's heavily dependent upon scenario, but right. somewhere between 200 and say 800 or a million dollars of income. That's going to be this random group where, depending upon your unique situation, you could owe more money or save money. Where right. I'm com at a less than 150 or so, I'm pretty comfortable saying you're likely to save money. At over a million dollars, you're likely to save money. In that middle ground, it, it could be anything depending on what's going on. Yeah, so it's dependent on where you live, how expensive mm -hmm. your house is, what else? <laughs> the structure of your businesses, the, so, whether you're right. a pass-through and the dual income. So the major thing for people in your group, um, and I was, I'm going to kind of dance around it a little bit because that's going to be the, 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 the pass-through deduction is obviously the major, major issue for people in this space. Yeah. We're not going to few little things off around it, and then we can focus on that, which would be the major So piece. just so we're clear, when we say pass-through, we mean LLC or uh, S-Corp. Uh, right uh, or schedule or schedule C. So, schedule C is also applied. Okay, and schedule C, mm -hmm. which is probably the majority of right. <laughs> yeah. the audience, uh, freelancers, individual, or um, you know, Thoughtbot was an S corp until last yeah. year, actually, and then we we dropped our S election and switched to C corp. But yep. is it the majority of corporations in the U.S. are passed through, or is it? If it's not the majority, it's a significant. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's far more pass-through entity. So it depends on how you measure mm -hmm. it, right? Because everybody traded on the stock exchange is a C corp, right. right? That's a little bit of a lie. There's some natural bit of partnerships and some funky stuff up there. But generally speaking, all the major corporations you know of are all C corporations. Mm -hmm. They hire. The huge swaths of people, they have tons and tons of revenue, they have a huge market cap. But if you're looking at it from a pure quantity standpoint, like mm -hmm. account standpoint, there are far more pass-throughs. Right? Because for every C-Corp, there's some person who's got an LLC that owns that building, an LLC that owns that building. Right. So it's very, very common, especially for some of my wealthier clients to have – I mean, I've got clients that have half a dozen LLCs right. just for various holding companies and things like that. They've got one pass-through for all this, all this different stuff. It's typically very common to just have one C corporation and then an army of pass-throughs around it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So And then small businesses, as a general rule, yes – are very, very commonly pastors. Almost all of them are pastors. I think I have, my roster's got 140 clients of it. It skews very heavily to freelancers. 90 or 100 of my 140 clients are all sole owner or couple owner freelance groups. And I think in that whole posse, I've got, I, I probably do 100 pastor returns and I probably do two C Corp returns. Yeah. Maybe three. So that's about, the, in this space, that's a pretty common sampling. In this space, in the freelance space and tech space, pastors are the name of the game. Nearly everybody is either, and there's lots of flavors of it, um, yeah. and they're all a little bit different. But for the path to deduction purposes, it doesn't matter whether you're a Schedule C, whether you're a, whether you're a single member LLC filing as a Schedule C, whether you're an S corp, or any of those things. The deduction is going to work the same for all those guys. Mm -hmm. And so, what is the change that people should be aware of then? Okay, so the major major thing is going to be that, roughly speaking you get a deduction for 20% of your pass-through income. Now, I'm going to talk in generalities because a whole bunch of things where if you've got uh, REIT income or other real estate investment income or other things like that, there are some other things that come into play that might affect that. Mm -hmm. But basically what it means is, and, and the concept is, a pass-through is going to pay rates at the highest tax, at your individual tax rates, which the highest ones are now 37%. So the concept was, well, if I have a C corporation, I'm only paying 21%. Why mm -hmm. would I pay... 
37. So what they, the way they did that was to say, okay, well, if you're paying 37 at a, at a higher corporate tax rate, but we don't make you pay on the first 20%, then theoretically, 80% of 37 gets you a little bit closer to the 21 that a C-Corp's going to pay. And so it makes it a little bit more equitable in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Now, for most folks that are in the S-Corp and freelancer range, it's not going to make a huge it depends a great deal upon what your income is because of the phase out of that deduction. So the pass-through deduction is actually pretty easy. If you have nothing but pass-through income and it's all coming through, you just don't pay tax on the first 20% of it. It's, it's, not, it's a pretty straightforward thing. Right. The gain comes in when you have, there's a phase out for it and what gets included in that income. The deduction is 20% of the pass-through income or there's an alternative calculation, by the way. So the tax bill is extremely, it, it differentiates a lot between the service and pass-through businesses, and what I'm going to refer to as capital-intensive businesses. Mm -hmm. So most of your folks are probably freelance, like I said, knowledge workers. So right. we don't deal, they don't have a lot of W-2 employees. They don't have a lot of capital deployed in the business. They don't have a lot of machinery, equipment, stuff like that. Remember that this whole tax bill was built around the concept of America needs to make things and that people making things is how we start the economy more. Now, there's a whole other episode just about whether or not that is a true statement. Right. But um, a lot of the things the type will peel it off. So there's like, you know, you talk about the 179 deduction and expensing for real estate improvements and things like that. A lot of that stuff got really increased as well. But again, for your folks, probably not super relevant. Mm -hmm. There is an alternative calculation. If you do have a pass-through where you have W-2 employees and you've got a large amount of capital invested, so you're manufacturing something, for example, you can calculate a different deduction that could be higher based on a sum of the capital you've invested in the business and your W-2 employees. So I won't go into it. I don't know that much about it. Just to let people know there is a caveat there. Yeah. It's different than the profit. So be aware that that's a, that's a thing. But I'm, I guess I'm trying to knock off the little things around yeah. the main thrust of what's going to apply to everybody. I also understand there's other sort of exemptions to the 20% thing too, like accountants or, or something like There's certain industries that are just saying, no, you're just taxed at the normal individual rate, right? Yeah, except that at below the threshold levels, which is the big thing about the pass reduction, is the threshold levels, okay. right? And the the limit is 157 for a person for a single person and 315 for a MFJ married filing joint return. At that level, you start losing the 20% deduction, and mm -hmm. it phases out over 50 for a single and 100 for a married. So between so if you have more than 415 of income, you lose that pass deduction. And this is where that middle range band is going to be really, really important. Right. And here's the major caveat. That limit, the threshold limitation is based on your taxable income, not the pass-through income. Mm -hmm. So if you make $200,000 in your pass-through and your spouse has a $200,000 W-2, you're going to lose your pass-through deduction. Right. And that's why that caveat of whereas someone that made three hundred dollars just on a pass-through is still going to get a full deduction. Right. Generally speaking, if you're below the threshold amounts then the service stuff, you, you still get to take the pass-through deduction under those levels. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, they limit the pass-through deductions based on, basically like we said, they want people that are making things, not just what they call the professional services. So yeah. accounting, law, medicine, and then they, their catch-all, they put consulting. Normally that definition is includes engineers and architects. Um, they apparently have better lobbyists than accountants <laughs> and, <laughs> and lawyers and health professionals do because even though that limitation they applied normally refers to engineers and architects, they specifically took those people out. Yeah. So you, that does not apply to you anymore. But if you're in law, and then the, the other thing becomes, they put the catch-all of consulting. This is a classic case of what's go to a tax court. 
Do you make software yourself or are you a software consultant? Well, that was the question that I was getting to, which is, <laughs> I think a lot of the people who listen who are freelancing or, or might have an S-Corp or an LLC and it's a pass-through and we're doing software design and development consulting. Yeah. I start <laughs> to become a lot more careful about what NISC codes mm -hmm. I put on those things. If it's got consulting in the title, I might want to get rid of it. Right. I don't know what else you're going to put in there. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And that's going to be a perfect example of like, what does that word mean? What does consulting mean? There is not really a good definition of that. So what's going to happen right now is a whole bunch of people, your audience, clients, all of them, are going to go back and say, uh, yeah, no, you know what? New plan. I'm not a consultant. <laughs> right. And the IRS can be like, no, except you are. And you're going to go, no, no, I'm not. And then we're going to go to tax court and right. we're going to start building case law around how do you go define it? Because it's simple enough. If you're a consultant, it doesn't apply. It seems very straightforward until you someone has until someone says, okay, what's the definition of a consultant? Mm -hmm. Is a designer a consultant? I don't know. I'm not design. I'm not consulting. I'm designing, right? Or go back to the software guys. Well, I'm not a software consultant. I'm a software engineer. Engineer specifically excluded from that. Right. So I'm just a software engineer. I'm not a software consultant. Right. And then we have to, and you know, that's that's a perfect example of like, we're going to say you're a software engineer, not a consultant. And the IRS is going to be like, no, no, no. But what they meant was you. Like, well, that's not what they said. So mm -hmm. go take us to court and we'll, we'll sort it out. Um, yeah. And going to tax court is, is actually relatively, I mean, it's a very uncommon thing, but it's also not as big a deal. It, it, it's how most of the actual tax law practically gets written. Also, what will happen is if these things start to queue up, the IRS will issue documentation, right? They'll preemptively say, this is what yeah. we mean by this as, as an well, attempt to... here's the trick. Okay. They do it in a couple different ways, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got regulations. Usually they're not going to do regulations unless they have some sort of case law to back it up. Right. So they will issue guidance. Right. Guidance means, hey, this is what we think the rule means. But the guidance means they're saying what they're what they're saying is we think this is what the rule means. You can still disagree with them, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? You don't have to follow that rule. What they're saying is if you disagree with our guidance, then expect to go to tax court with us and fight about it. Yeah, right. But you, which you are so perfectly within your right to do because you can disagree with their guidance. Mm -hmm. And people have disagreed with the IRS guidance before, and they have won because the courts didn't support what you know. They may made a case that said this is wrong. This is a wrong interpretation, and the courts agreed and supported that. So it really becomes a risk-benefit scenario of if you want to go against IRS guidance, be prepared to defend that position. If you want to make sure that you never have an issue with the IRS, then follow their guidance. Mm -hmm. So practically speaking, what might someone who you know is a freelancer or small business and currently has a pass-through entity, mm -hmm. sitting here at the end of 2017, what should we be doing? Hiring you to... <laughs> no, um, so the, the biggest thing is going to be figuring out where your income is going to fall and are you going to fall in the phase-out range. Mm -hmm. that's, that's step one. Based on my other income and what other stuff I've got coming through, you know, based on my other taxable income, what, what's going on in my scenario that might jump me out of getting through the passive deduction? If I'm under those limits then you, don't, you honestly don't need you to worry that much. It, it's all going to be automatic. It's just math. And, that's, mm -hmm. and that, if you're not getting the phase-out limits, it's just math. The robots will figure out how to will run the numbers for you and tell you this is your new tax bill, and it will be lower than what it has been in the past, typically. Right. Look for, you know, if you don't have a tax professional, um, what I'd be saying is, especially if you're a pass-through in that range, I'd be looking at getting somebody. Yeah. Mostly because I'd be looking to get your 2017 returns done ASAP because 
that is the numbers you want to run these new scenario analysis off of. Mm -hmm. You want to run a 17 return really quickly, get that done, so that I can then immediately run that run that against the new 18 laws and use my most recent numbers as my scenario analysis to know. Because the problem we're running right now is I've got a bunch of clients and we're running scenario analysis based on the new tax bill, but I'm running it based off their 2016 return. Right. Well, these numbers are a year old now, right. and a lot of stuff happens in a year, so they're probably not that accurate anymore. So the more accurately you can get that information, uh, and the more fresh that information can be, the better off you're going to be. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's going to be a big deal, and I, I harp on this a lot about people, freelancers are notorious for just when it comes to things like, hey, how do I run my books and how do I run my business? And they're notorious for just like, well, I just do whatever. Yeah. If you want to escape the personal service rules, which is what we were talking about with the accounting, engineering, consulting, thing like that, you need to be making the case that you are not a just a self-employed person who made an LLC, mm -hmm. that you are running a business, that you are running a company, and your service for that company is just one component of that business that's being run. But you also have brand factors and product and all this kind of stuff like yep. that. And the way you support that is you have to run it in a business-like manner. And a business-like manner means I have separate bank accounts for everything. I have mm -hmm. books that are kept up currently. I don't co-mingle my business expenses and my personal expenses, which is not to say you can't put as much, I mean, put as much as you can over in the business. Write it off, right? If you if you want right. to make the case of the business deduction, great. But real businesses don't pay for personal expenses out of the business account and, don't, and real business owners don't pay for their business expenses out of their personal accounts. Mm -hmm. you, you just don't mix those up. Getting those lines in place, getting those... The good news is it's easier than ever to do this stuff, right? You can plug this stuff into Zero or QuickBooks and it'll download and you just click through the damn things. Like it's not mm -hmm. complicated. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to be self-employed, it's even more important because otherwise what's going to happen is they're going to go, you're a freelance consultant. It doesn't matter. You're excluded. You commingled all this stuff and, and all that tax. And what, then what happens is you can get a double whammy effect if you lose that argument. Because not only do I get my income jumped up, but if they start disallowing deductions, it jumps my income up into the phase out range, which means not only am I losing the deductions and paying tax on that, but then I lose the then I'm now in the phase out, so I lose my other deduction as well. So there's a scenario where losing, you know, a hundred dollars of deduction in the phase out range, like I'm paying double or triple tax on that because I lost the phase out and I lost the actual business deduction. So Things are complicated. They're always complicated in a time of transition. But one of the things that jumps out at me is, or, or let me ask, like, is it ever going to get simpler? <laughs> uh, it depends on who you're asking for. For yeah. millions and millions of Americans, it just did. Mm -hmm. They got rid of a whole bunch of crap off the Schedule A and doubled the standard deduction. And it's true. Yep. Well, the problem is, you know, you and I exist in a space where Everyone's like us. We're mm -hmm. all a bunch of S-Corp owners or you know, C-Corp owners or things like that. We're still the minority. We're still a very small minority of people that run this way. And so for probably tens of millions of Americans, gathering up those charitable receipts and figuring out how much they spend on their cell phone, they use for work, all that kind of – how many miles they drive for work they didn't get reimbursed for. Yep. And this all goes with W-2 job. All that stuff's gone. Yeah. You don't have to do it anymore. So like I said, they, they did in a lot of cases simplify the tax code. Just not for us. Right. <laughs> Um, I don't think and it's a really good question. I've not actually thought of, so I'm going to make up an answer and I, re mm -hmm. I reserve the right to take a right turn yeah. in the middle of my yeah. answer and change my answer. But I don't think that it will ever get simpler for us mm -hmm. for one very important reason. The way we are operating now is as a sole owner or, or when I say sole owner, I'm also talking about like if you, if yeah. you and a friend, you two or three people. 
that are effectively doing services that up until a long time ago, you would have been a W-2 person for one large company, or you would have had a couple of contract gigs. If you only have two, three, four customers, you're mm -hmm. doing consulting type stuff on a freelance basis, you exist in a gray area between you are not an employee and you are not a self-employed person in the traditional sense. You are treating yourself like a business. Mm -hmm. And that's an easy thing to say, but it's a very complicated thing in practice. And it's a very complicated thing in the way that business has run. Because this concept of I am a person, but I'm also a company is actually relatively new, right. right? It wasn't until LLCs got cheap in the you know 80s and stuff like that that we did this stuff. S-Corps haven't been around that long in the whole scope of the tax code. Mm -hmm. And so treating an individual as a company is a relatively new idea. And it's a complicated idea because you're, you're basically straddling a fence. Yeah. We live and exist in a gray area that only tax accountants and tax lawyers actually understand why it's a gray area. Mm -hmm. Most, I guarantee you most Congress people don't. It's exceedingly obvious in the way the tax bill is written and done that, that especially if you look at like the first versions, mm -hmm. the first versions were completely, just completely asinine. You're like, you, you clearly have no idea how this stuff actually operates. Fortunately, they got some people that actually know some things to kind of help fix that stuff out in the, in the final versions. But it's very obvious that vast swaths of the country completely underestimate, A, the desirability and profitability of working as a freelance person, but also dramatically underestimate its linkage to the middle class. What you'll see is that this way of working, mm -hmm. this our space that we all exist in, is we're all middle class people. Right. And that entire middle class is turning themselves into corporations. Mm -hmm. Right. And the reason, so the other reason becomes it's not going to become less of a gray area is because if we do change policy, economic, fiscal, tax, etc., to reverse the quote unquote decline of the middle class, then that whole thing is going to become a lot less attractive, right? Mm -hmm. Because you shift all the back back to the more traditional models, or we either do policy or don't do anything, and that shift accelerates, in which case it becomes its own little world that becomes much, much more common and much more prevalent, and then it will get clarity. But I think that you're looking for a generational shift in that, mm -hmm. right? The way we operate is a consequence of all the issues that are affecting the American economy right now, income yep. inequality, skills gap, growing in income inequality, the rise of the freelance and tech workers and things like that. We just happen to be the knowledge workers that, you know, if we could move more jobs to where the land is cheaper in the middle of the country and or move more people in from the middle of the country out to where the high paying jobs are, our economy would be completely different, but we're stuck. We're kind of stuck mm -hmm. where we are right now. And we are this kind of cadre of people that actually have the ability to move around and do stuff because because what we're selling is knowledge only so we can sell it from any place. That's why it's not going to get easier. And I know it's a very long convoluted answer to a, yeah. it seems like a very simple question, but it's not going to get easier because it's a very complicated problem that created our situation. Yeah. And therefore, it's going to be a very complicated solution to fix it. Mm -hmm. So it was already complicated before. It's not going to get any simpler. And you touched on this a little bit already. But what is your recommendation for who should be working with a bookkeeper? Who should be working with an accountant? Everyone. Yeah, everyone. And you're yeah. you're you're biased because that is what yeah. you do. Yeah, yeah. But I have to acknowledge, like that's my recommendation too, Absolutely. as as a business owner and someone who started doing freelancing and then grew it into now a 100-person company across se mm -hmm. seven cities, like very early on we did our own bookkeeping. It was a mistake. It was, it was a mistake. <laughs> and there are solutions out there. Like you, you could work with someone locally. It's not as expensive or difficult as you think. No, and there's two major components of this that are different, right? So I don't do bookkeeping, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Um, There's the tax accountant person who does like what I do, which is I do CFO stuff. I do investments, taxes, planning type of thing like that. And there's also the bookkeeping component. Mm -hmm. The reason I say at least working with a bookkeeper, I would almost tell you to work with a bookkeeper before you go work with a tax accountant, Mm -hmm. which is probably an odd thing to say. But what I'll tell you is good bookkeepers and good bookkeeping businesses have gotten the cost for us to do that bookkeeping down and when we're doing it at scale and i say we because my wife has her own bookkeeping business and i do have some other companies that we do bookkeeping with that what we will bill on an hourly rate if so two scenarios either if you're not billing out at least what we're billing out you probably can't afford to be a freelancer right 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 so you're so the opportunity cost is too high which means you're going to fail in business anyways because you're just not you just aren't making enough to be able to run this as a business and the, the economics are just not there we can do this so much faster and so much cheaper than you can that doesn't make any sense you're mm-hmm. you're, you're typically losing money not just because i want to make more business because like i said i don't do that bookkeeping stuff but typically speaking if you're doing it properly you're typically losing money if you're not doing the bookkeeping on your own. Yeah. The, t- the taxes are actually easier. If you've got under $150,000 of pass-through income, you don't have anything crazy going on, go plug the thing, take the mm-hmm. P&L, go plug it into the software that you can probably get online and it's going to spit the thing out for you. Like it's not that big. It's That's actually easier than doing the bookkeeping because it takes less time. Right? Right. You can do that in 20, 30 minutes, right. whereas the bookkeeping is a very labor-intensive process. Right. Let alone, you added the caveat, doing it right. Like. There is right. a presumption that you're doing the bookkeeping right if you're doing it yourself. In my experience, right. I've talked to way too many founders who found out that they were doing it wrong. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a very labor intensive process, mm-hmm. but it's a labor intensive process that does very, very good at scale, which is why bookkeeping firms that do this outsourcing, we can just do it cheaper than you can. Yeah. Unless you're billing very, very little, in which case, like I said, you get the, the follow on problem of then you've got a business model problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a problem of accounting, it's a mm-hmm. problem of, of a business model. Okay, so that's the bookkeeping side. What about the accounting and tax professional side of things? Yeah, at, at that level, you really are looking for income, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got, like I said, under 100, eh, let me caveat that. If you've got under $100,000 of income and you're paying for a professional accountant like myself, typically the people that are doing that are doing it for A, other reasons. So mm-hmm. for someone like me, I do taxes, but I also do financial planning for my clients. So they're asking me everything about investments. Mm-hmm. Or B, they're paying more than they need to pay because they want the comfort. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, you're paying for security. You're paying just because I don't want to worry about it. I know I could probably do it myself, and I've got, I'm have got i going to be 97% accurate, but I'd rather pay a few bucks and not have to worry and think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine. That's a perfectly valid. If you find value in that, then go ahead and do that. Once you get above, especially if you think you're hitting the phase out for the pass-through deduction range, yep. now you need someone who has read and understands the nuances of these tax bills to be able to understand the interpretation. Because in those scenarios, when you say, I'm a software engineer, not a consultant, well, now you're making arguments that mm-hmm. are not black and white to a regulatory body. And you typically want someone that knows how to make those arguments, a tax accountant or a tax lawyer, to be ready and able to make sure you're making a valid argument and are doing it, right? It's not like at the lower levels where, like, well, if all I have is W-2, like box one is what box one is. Put it in the thing. The software does numbers. There, there is no arguments being made. Right. But in that phase out range, in that how I do things, how I classify my deductions, now we're making arguments. That's when you want to bring someone in to make those arguments with you. Yeah. Or to at least explain to you what the cost benefit is. Like yeah. your, your audit risk goes up Y and you save X tax. I don't care if you do it or not. It's not my because it's not my tax to pay if you get audited. I'm just telling you, you know, you've got three scenarios here, and here's the risk and reward of each one of them, and you get to pick. A machine can't do that yet. Yeah. Right. You still need, you need a person to be able to help you run that stuff. 
and you know, I, I make the argument it's cheaper than than you might think. I mean, assuming that you're not doing anything crazy, what are you talking about on a yearly basis to have a professional do your taxes if you're a, a pastor? It's even um, just a ballpark range. Yeah, it, uh, it, it well, it varies a great deal yeah. upon where in what geographic locations you mm-hmm. are. Um, but I will I will quote the coastal rates because that's what I know better because okay. I'm on the coast. You're typically looking at for a good firm. You're typically looking at anywhere from seven fifty to about eighteen hundred bucks a year. Mm-hmm. My freelancer package is one hundred and forty bucks a month. Yep. So somewhere in that somewhere in that thousand to you can get down a little bit cheaper if you've got stuff going good, but um, mm-hmm. you're, looking, you're typically looking for plan to spend at least a hundred bucks a month on that. Great. So you mentioned running scenarios I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, if you're a pass through, you should be paying estimated taxes on a quarterly basis. So mm-hmm. are those based off of 2017 numbers? Um, well, the estimated tax rules are a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. There's like, yeah, a, a if, little. You <laughs> if you don't want to pay a penalty, the safe harbor payment is either 100 or 110% of what you paid last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as long as you pay at least what you paid last year or 110% of what you paid last year in estimates, then you'll be fine. If you have a down year or you happen to know you're going to get a giant tax break and you don't want to pay 110% because you know that's going to be too much, then you got to dial it down a, little, a lot more carefully. If you then can figure out what your taxes are and then come tax time, you don't owe anything, you'll also be okay. Mm-hmm. So if in 2017, I paid $80,000 in taxes. If I want to make sure that I'm going to pay no penalty, if I pay $80,000 in estimates, then I'll be fine. But if I know I'm only going to make owe $60,000 in tax this year, and I make estimates worth 60, mm-hmm. as long as I don't have a balance due, meaning my tax bill comes in at 59999 or less, then I'll be okay. Yep. Make sense? Yes. So you get to build a little leeway there, right? Because we don't know what Q3 is going to be. We don't know mm-hmm. what Q4 is going to be. So we got to add a little bit of leeway there. And also the reality is if you short yourself a little bit, the, the penalties on estimated taxes are typically not that right. onerous anyways. Right. It's not that big a deal. Right. So obviously we're not, we're not giving concrete advice here. No, but, no, but no, no. in general, there is going to be potentially like your, your tax person will say, this is going to be in your favor in 2018, but you have to pay Absolutely. estimated taxes throughout 2017. Yeah. And so there's going to be a number that's right yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what I did, for example, like with all my clients this tax season, I built a calculator in Excel mm-hmm. when I started reading the tax bill. It just said, okay, here's the major moving parts. And I can drop in a couple of numbers from what I'll use for the 17 return. So what I'll end up doing is, and this is why you hired a tax accountant, is what I'll end up doing is when I finish our 17 return, I'll pull my little tax calculator up, drop in a few numbers, and it will give me a projection of what their 18 is going to be. So when I tell them, because I give them their estimate, you typically figure out what your estimated payments are going to be with your 17 return. So with your 2017 return, I will also send you the 2018 estimate vouchers. So I will go drop those 17 numbers in, do a quick projection for 18, and then go, okay, here's what I think you should be paying for 2018 for estimates. I can do all the returns twice. Yes. To a certain extent. So typically, major concerns, taxes, especially in a period of change like we're going through now. Some other concerns that individuals and and freelancers and small businesses might have is like, how do I approach saving and retirement and those kinds of things? And I know you have a strategy for this or Mm -hmm. or, a way you do it. So can you speak to that a little bit? Well, always step zero, save more. Yeah. But... (laughs) Um, the, the strategy that I use is what I call the, the, the bucket of the waterfalls. If you saw my release notes talk, I mm-hmm. described that in there. It's basically a little checklist that I run people through. The first thing I want you saving for is an emergency fund. Um, mm-hmm. I don't care what else you've got going on. I want you to get some cash in the bank. 
even if you've got debt and things like that, I'd still rather have you have some cash to be able to not go into more debt, right? Going into more debt's bad. Don't burn up all your cash doing that. Once you've got the emergency fund taken care of, then we start taking care of debt. And in that scenario, I'm talking about consumer debt, so high interest debt. This is not a mortgage. This is not necessarily an auto loan. This is typically credit cards and student loans. We kind of run the emergency fund and the consumer debt stuff in parallel. Mm -hmm. Um, Just so I want to keep, so if I get a hundred bucks in, I want to hit five, 10 grand in my savings account. And once I'm there, if I have five grand, I want to save, I'll typically send 2,500 bucks yeah. extra to the loan and 2,500 to the emergency account. I run those kind of 50-50 until I get most of my debt paid down and I've got a good chunk of money. Now, the chunk of money varies, right? If you are 55 years old and I've got four kids at home, that's a, that's a different emergency fund amount than if you're 24 and don't have anything to worry about. But then from the next level from there is the retirement stuff. This is going to be your IRAs and 401ks. For freelancers in particular, I always, always recommend the same exact setup. Use QuickBooks or not QuickBooks, use QBO, the online version, mm-hmm. or Zero. Use Gusto to pay yourself payroll. Gusto has a 401k built right in through a company called Guideline, and they're fantastic. Um, we run our own stuff there. We run all our own stuff through there. So you should be, if you're a freelancer, your ideal setup to be as professional as possible is to run that stuff. Yep. If you've got that going, it's real easy to just, what you're going to do is you're going to add $18,000 to your payroll, mm-hmm. right? And then you're going to go defer that as the employee into the 401k. So once you get to where you can be doing that, so now I've got my emergency fund, I've got most of my debt paid for, I'm putting 18 grand a year in my individual 401k, then I move on to the extra money. And that's the the top level of the plan, which has got those two different buckets that kind of play off each other. Um, One I call the stable value, one is I call the opportunistic. And this could be any number of things, but um, as the terms describe, these two things kind of go hand in hand. When I have opportunities, I want to have money available to jump on them. I want, to, but, but they're typically very risky. So I'm thinking in scenarios like this, investment real estate, I'm thinking cryptocurrencies, I'm thinking a startup or you know something right. like that. Those things that are very illiquid but could pay off huge. That gets paired with a stable value account. A stable value account is an investment that is not an IRA, not a SEP, it's typically a straight brokerage account. And it's invested to earn somewhere between say three and six percent, three and six, uh, somewhere in that range, which is not a very high earning rate. I'm still making money and I'm not losing money from a purchasing power standpoint on that range. But practically speaking, if I'm only earning on say 5% on average, my volatility is gonna be very, very low, which means I'm not losing money, but when I need to go jump on an opportunity, I can shift it. And that's kind of why that we have these. When an opportunity pays off, that money shifts over to stable value, waiting for the next opportunity. Yeah. And then when an opportunity presents itself, I shift out of the stable and jump onto it. And then these two just constantly play back and forth depending on the environment, the opportunities and things that I've seen in my own front. That's the, the order of operations to doing that stuff. But you're not doing it, as you describe it, it's sort of, a, it's a waterfall. So it, it's the overflow. Yes. Like you're not even doing any of this stuff until you're only dealing with Correct. overflow from Correct. the mm-hmm. other activities that you've done, your your emergency, your retirement yep. savings, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I don't I do not do any 401k until my until my emergency fund is, is what, yeah, I describe it as a waterfall plan, right? Because mm-hmm. you fill the top level up and then it, the overflow from that spills down to the next level and then it spills down to the next mm-hmm. level. So if I don't have my emergency fund goal met, I don't do any, this is the part that frustrates people a lot, right? Because what they all want to do is go, I've got 10 grand to my name, I'm going to go put it all on Bitcoin. And I'm like, you can't do that. Like, but Bitcoin's going to make so much more than the cash. And I'm like, I, I understand that. And that's not a false statement. You are going to be losing money from an earnings standpoint by leaving that 10 grand in cash, then you are going to be putting it in Bitcoin or something, right? But you're confusing an absolute return with a financial plan, right? Just mm-hmm. because it's the highest absolute return doesn't mean it's the best investment for you to make. You've got to have that 10 grand. You cannot, aff- in that scenario, you cannot afford the risk 
inherent in a volatile investment like a cryptocurrency if you don't have 10 grand in the bank. When you've got 20, then I can take 10, put it in crypto, and I can have 10 in the bank. It's an emergency fund. But people always assume that I want to maximize my return on all of my money. And it's just not true. It's just it's it's a very dangerous way to go. You protect yourself in the long run by hedging, by protecting your basis. And wealth is made in the downturns, not in the upswings. You see this a lot in very, very wealthy people. You, you, you follow mm-hmm. their patterns, right? Warren Buffett will sit on cash while everyone's buying into Bitcoin. And then when it goes, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Bitcoin dropped to a thousand, then Warren Buffett's going to come in and buy $10 billion worth of it. And then it's going to turn <laughs> into 40 billion, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. When they come through and they sweep up all the real estate when it's pennies in the dollar, they sweep up all these companies when they're cheap because nobody else is buying. That's when the real money is getting made. Mm-hmm. And it's because you could weather that down. And so that's what we try to, the big thing with investments that people underestimate is it's not whether you made 18 versus 12 in a good year. Mm-hmm. It's whether you only lost two as opposed to only losing, as opposed to losing 15, 20, or 25. Mm-hmm. That's where the long-term wealth is made. So you mentioned you're an outsourced CFO, an independent mm-hmm. CFO for companies. You mentioned you have a lot of customers. Are they all over the place? You work remotely? Yeah. Yeah. And are you at max capacity? Are you still growing? No, the CFO Andrew business is at max capacity. I just closed signups last week. Um, but I'm actually working with, because I'm still getting inquiries a lot, mm-hmm. because there aren't that many people that do monthly fee stuff like I do. Um, but I've actually talked to a couple other advisors across the country that were getting like geared up to basically continue on the CFO Andrew model. Mm-hmm. And the main reason being that like most CPA firms, what happens is they grow, but they grow by building more people underneath them. Right. So the person that you went in with, that you built a relationship with, isn't necessarily the same person that's doing your work. And a couple of years down the road, as they move up the ladder, mm-hmm. you kind of get handed off. That's, that's very, very common in the CPA world. That's why in my model, I have to cap the roster. Mm-hmm. I can't have 500 people that I am friends with and know and take care of. I just can't keep track of that many people. So I have to cap the model a certain number because I'm not going to just start passing my clients down to a junior guy that I hire. Mm -hmm. But that model has become very attractive to a lot of people, which is why we're working to expand it with some other people. So it might not be me, but there will be hopefully in the next six to nine months, there will be people in the CFO Andrew network that are operating. And they're not me. They're they're their own independent people that that have their own thoughts and appealings and feelings. But a couple of core things, right? They, they do monthly fees. They do unlimited consultation like I do. They do, you know, I'm not billing for a tax return. I'm just billing. You're, you're paying for a relationship and for advice on going basis, not just for filling out forms. Mm-hmm. They'll cap their rosters once they get full and all this kind of stuff like that. So I'm hoping to expand that out so that more people are available to work in this way than maybe are now. So if people are interested in that or want to follow along with you or want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? You can join the mailing list on cfoandrew.com or uh, on Twitter, or I'm CFO Andrew. Uh, Andrew, thanks very much. My pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate your time and advice. You have a busy year ahead of you, I can tell. (laughs) It's going to be fun. Good luck. Thank you much. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 260. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.